following after Jesus takes a lot of guts. It takes a lot of humility to really follow after Him. Humility because He said that if anyone would come after Me, He must deny Himself, take up His cross daily, and follow after Me. All three of those require incredible humility, involve incredible moments of laying down your pride. And all of those are necessary if we're going to be that which Christ has desired us to be as His children. But like anything, humility can be misunderstood. In fact, it can be falsely manufactured if we're not careful. And we begin taking notes on who is more humble, who is more service-oriented, who is the better follower of Jesus. And ultimately, what we don't want to see, or we don't want people to know, is that deep down inside, that there's really a lack of humility. And this is not me casting a net. This is not me pointing fingers. This is me stepping on my own toes. Those moments where you want people to think, oh, Man, what a humble person for the Lord. But really, it's just a mask. A mask that's there and not always real. I struggle with that many times. Many days putting my shelf, my, my pride on, on the back burner, on the shelf and saying, Lord, it is meant to be Your way. That sounds so easy coming from a pastor. But in actual practical application, what does that look like? What does that even mean? As I said before, it's something that you hear people talking about manufacturing. You hear people use little cliches about humility. What is humility? What does it mean to be humble? Well, you know, it doesn't mean thinking less of yourself. It means thinking of yourself less. Wait, what? What? What does that even mean? But here's what I think authentic biblical humility looks like. It's something that that can't just be manufactured. Something that just can't be mimicked. Something that is, it is taught, no doubt, by other believers that have walked before us. But it's based on what Christ has done. It's based on how His work of the cross has awakened them. And they see their position before the Lord. That's where we've been in this last few, this last few weeks of the series, looking through the letters to Corinth, the letters of Corinthians. We're going to be there again today, so you can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, if you're in your copy of God's Word, whether it be in print or, pay, uh, or electronic. If you need to use one of our pew Bibles, if you don't have a Bible, it's on page 1013 is where we're going to be. And if you don't have a Bible, it would be our privilege to let you have that, that pew Bible. We want to get a Bible in the hands and the hearts of people. And so please take that as a gift from us to you. That is why we've been raising money to put Bibles in the pews and ultimately not for them to sit there as little tokens, but hey, to be a gift to people in their time of need. And the Word is very timely. But we're going to look today at what Paul is writing to us about not having to depend on a mask, but based on what Christ has done. He gives us this perspective, this corrected view of what humility Authentic biblical humility looks like. And I think it's so timely, so needed 
for my life, and I pray it's timely for yours as well. So stand with me as we honor God in the reading of His Word. This is what Paul says in chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians. I said if you were using one of the few Bibles, it's page 1013. But this is what it says. A person should think of us in this way. As servants of Christ and managers of the mysteries of God. In this regard, it is required that managers be found faithful. It is of little importance to me that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself, for I am not conscious of anything against myself, but I am not justified by this. It is the Lord who judges me. So don't judge anything prematurely. Before the Lord comes, who will both bring to light what is hidden in darkness and reveal the intentions of the heart, and then praise will come to each one from God. Now, brothers and sisters, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, nothing beyond what is written. The purpose is that none of you will be arrogant, favoring one person over another, For who makes you so superior? What do you have that you didn't receive? If in fact you did receive it, why do you boast as if you hadn't received it? You are already full. You are already rich. You have begun to reign as kings without us. And I wish you did reign so that you could also reign, we could also reign with you. For I think God has displayed us, the apostles, In last place, like men condemned to die. For we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to people. We are fools for Christ, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. We, You are distinguished, but we are dishonored. Up to the present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty. We are poorly clothed, roughly treated, homeless, we labor working with our own hands. We are, when we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we respond graciously. And even now, we are like the scum of the earth for everyone's, like everyone's garbage. Now, I'm not writing this to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children, for you have, may have Countless instructors in Christ, but you don't have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. This is why I've sent Timothy to you. He is my dearly loved and faithful child in the Lord. He will remind you about my ways in Christ Jesus, just as I teach everywhere in every church. Now, some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills. And I will find out not the talk, but the power of those who are arrogant. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. What do you want? Should I come to you with a rod or in love and in a spirit of gentleness? Let's pray. Lord God, I thank You for this letter. And I know that You have this day and for us to study this portion of the letter for a reason. And I pray that in that we would find and discover a new perspective on authentic biblical humility 
but we wouldn't just have our minds enlightened, our hearts encouraged, or our thoughts entertained. Lord, we would take Your Word as it was intended to change our very life. And I pray that You would give us that ability. In Jesus' name, Amen and Amen. You may be seated. Now, whenever we're coming to study a particular text of Scripture, it's important for us to ask a few questions. We've talked about this. It helps us to gain uh, insight on context and why and when and where the Bible and this portion of the Bible was written and for what meaning. And by doing that, we see how it translates into our life today. Instead of trying to assert our own meaning or assert our own interpretation and trying to put another mask on the Bible, we open it up and say, God, what is, what is this that you would have me to know? Now, the Scripture has been given to us to change who we are. It helps us to know that there is a way that seems right to man, but in the way it only leads to death. And so if there's the way that seems right to man and ends in death, then obviously we need another way. And God has graciously gifted us and loved us so much that He's given us this Word so that we would not trust our own way, but we would find the way that leads to life. And when we find that life, He says, I make you a new creation. What was once there is no longer there. Now, there's going to be shadows of that. There are going to be dim habits that, that have hard to, that are hard to break at times. But what God has done is He has made us a new creation. And not just a new creation to be left to itself. According to Romans chapter 8, He has made us a new creation to be conformed into the very image of His Son. So when we think about how God is making us who we were meant to be, it's not that we're becoming just something completely distinct. We're becoming more like Jesus as He makes us into His image, as He begins shaping who we are. He doesn't take away all the features of us, but we become looking like Him. And there are many ways to bear the image of Christ, but by far, when people think about Jesus, many times they get to His humility. His willingness to be submissive and to serve and to wash feet and to touch the one with leprosy and to feed the multitudes. We see the one who was not, willing, not afraid to sit with those who were ostracized by society. We see the evidence of Christ's humility. And if that is in Christ Jesus, and our goal is to be made into a new creation, and that's what the Gospel does, and that that conforms to the image of the Son, then humility is something we have to talk about. But not in a way that's forced, not in a way that's manufactured of our own willpower or tradition, but in a way that is tangible and shaped by the Scripture. And we're going to see this in the Apostle Paul. And I think it's a great illustration that God has given the Apostle Paul to write this letter and to demonstrate the humility he demonstrates because this is a man that would once fly off the handle and was seeking to have people stoned, put in prison, beaten, and tortured just because their way of life did not line up to his worldview. And through a dramatic encounter with Christ, you see a life transformed that is willing to extend grace after grace just as he had received grace after grace. It's a great reflection. Now, Paul is not perfect. He was not perfect. Only Jesus is perfect. But Jesus does a work in Paul that we can learn from. And so the question that we get to is what perspective does the Scripture reveal to us today about authentic 
biblical humility. And so here is perspective number one. It is that authentic biblical humility It is cultivated through a correct submission to judgment. Paul says a person should think of us in this way, as servants of Christ and managers of the mysteries of God. In this regard, it is required that managers be found faithful. Now what Paul is saying is he has already gotten to this point where he understands this is who God is and this is who I am. And the worlds apart are vast. But the God who is far, far apart has extended grace to me, a lowly servant. And I still consider myself, though I am a child, I am one that is privileged to do to whatever bidding the Lord would ask me. And in this place, he urges the church at Corinth to consider himself, as well as Apollos, as well as Peter, and as well as these servants of Christ he's been writing about, to not just consider them servants, but who parities. The Greek language has multiple words for servants. Many times it uses the word doulos. It just means faithful servant. Someone at beck and call. But huperites is a way of describing a servant that would have the lowliest of position. The position of a slave rower on the lowest level of one of the big mighty warships. You ever seen the old movies with the Roman warships? And they got the big whips and they're just like, whoa, wee, oh. Whoa, you know, they're, they're, they're like rowing the big boat. The Huperites was the person in the low part of the boat. You didn't even see them on the screen. They had that bottom part. So everything that was drifting down from the top, that's what they had on them. That's, and that was their job. That was their role. And Paul says, that's how you should consider us. Not just a regular servant, but the lowest of considered servants. He, said, he uses another term. Not only is he a, a servant, a Huperites, of Christ. He's completely available to Him, but He is a manager, a steward of the mysteries of God. Someone that has been entrusted. Someone that has been given the privilege to manage and to take care of something precious. The steward of the house would generally be the one that would have, uh, they would be considered, according to Greek, the major domo. They would have the ability to be the leader in that home. And other than the right of complete ownership of that house, they were entrusted to take care of some of the finances. They were entrusted to take care of some of the product. They were entrusted to take care of some of the needs of the children. They were considered able to be trusted with something important. And Paul says, God has given us the ability to be managers of the mysteries of God. That is our position. That is who we submit to. His authority, His judgment, His view. And then he goes on to say, it's of little importance to me that I should be judged by you or by any human court for that matter. In fact, he goes, I don't even judge myself. And you may think, Paul, wow, what are you saying? Of course we have to submit to those things. Here is heart. He says, for I'm not conscious of anything against myself, but I am not justified by this. It is the Lord who judges me. He knew his job as a manager and steward, as a servant, was to be reliable. He knew that he had been entrusted with an incredible responsibility and yet given incredible independence. And so he wanted to be reliable to the Lord. He wanted to hold that responsibility and choose wisely with his freedom how to yield to that. And he was telling the Corinthians who had come to exercise this favoritism over different leaders over different parties over different groups he says here's what you need to know there are three types of judgment in this world and you've got to choose which one you're going to fully submit to 
Now, I submit to you that there's these three types of judgment today, even today, and Paul is right here. That we need to consider in our life and ask, but which one holds of utmost authority? There's first the judgment from others. Paul said, of course, this really meant nothing to him. Paul, in the point, he's like, hey, I'm willing to die. That wasn't that Paul was insane or crazy. He just said to live as Christ, to die as name. I'm willing to do whatever. So, you know what? If mankind doesn't like it, that's okay with me. Because I submit to someone higher. But here, we need to understand that while Paul's saying it really meant nothing to him in light of Christ, we're going to get to that, there is something we should learn, though. There's a sense in which a person really can't easily disregard the judgment of his fellow man. Let's just be careful to think about that. The odd thing is that despite of these radical accusations that sometimes get made, some of these things that just get thrown out there, mankind, inside of them, whether they're lost or found as a believer, they have instinctively a desire to point out virtue or vice. They're clear to see that. And clear to point that out. Because for virtue, we see that there are the basic qualities of honor and honesty, straightness and, and reliability, generosity, sacrifice and love, something doing things right and are reliable. And a vice is anything that says they're not reliable. Mankind can somewhat instinctively see some of that. And every now and then an outburst will come from your fellow man. Antisthenes, a cynical philosopher from back in the Greek days, said this, there are only two people who can tell you the truth about yourself. One, an enemy who has lost his temper, and two, a friend who loves you dearly. They're the ones that's going to be the most brutally honest with you. So it's quite true that we should never let the judgment of men, as Paul is saying, deflect us from what we know and believe to be right according to God's plan. But it's also true that we need to be somewhat sensitive to hearing what might be a little bit more accurate information about ourselves from others than we like to think. Secondly, Paul says that there's the type of judgment, it's not only the judgment from others, but there's the judgment from self. Paul said that he also disregarded this. He didn't hold it up as high of authority as looking to the Lord, but he knew very well this is the reason. Man's judgment about himself can, well, let's just be honest, it's going to be a little clouded, right? When we think about who we are, we can be a little clouded. We can be clouded by self-deceit. We can be clouded by self-satisfaction. We can be clouded by self-righteousness, by pride. It's true. The Bible tells us that Jeremiah said the heart is deceitful above all things. Who can even perceive it? Who can understand it? But here's the thing. We're always going to face judgment from others and judgment from ourselves because judgment from ourselves especially. There is one person, no matter how much we try to escape and we use methods of escape in this world, we can't ever get away from us. We can't. People try. It's when says substance abuse is so high. To get away from myself, to get away from others, to escape. But here's the thing. If a person loses their own self-respect and cannot lift their own heads, man, have you ever been in that place? Life seems intolerable in those moments. It seems an intolerable thing. Who do we see when our eyes look at the person in the mirror? That's a big deal. We need to consider that at times. But what we need to do always 
even though the reality of judgment from others and the reality of judgment from self is there, is we need to always hold it under the authority of the judgment of God. For His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And Paul said that all mankind will ultimately face the judgment of God. That one day He's coming. And He's going to make the judgment. All things will be analyzed. All of them. The Bible says that in every word and deed that we did will be brought into the light of His judgment. Every single one of them. Now, I know we live in a day and age. I've seen this uh, hashtag on Facebook before. Um, the only God can judge me hashtag. You know, you may, ha- you may have heard people, your friends, and some of them may not even believe really in God, and they'll say only God can judge me. I think that's kind of humorous. But here's what I find is even more humorous. Whenever they're going to have the aha moment that, yes, this statement that you're saying, only God can judge me, when you realize, oh, no, that's true. That's a reality. Mind blown when we get to that, that place. And so, some people live like only God can judge me as if He won't. But the truth is He will. And that should be an utterly frightening, fearful thing. But Paul, he said that the judgment he awaited, it was not one that came from any human day, from any human court, but of the day of the Lord. And he's saying, I am looking forward to this. And he's not doing it out of arrogance. He's not doing it out of vengeance. Arrogance and saying, well, Jesus is going to be proud of me when he comes, guys. It's going to be awesome. He's not doing it that way. And he's not doing, oh, some of y'all are going to get smoked. That's not how he's doing it. He is saying that one day God is going to come and those that knew his grace will be saved. And we will be thankful for every time we demonstrated that grace so that someone would know Jesus. The judgment of God is to have the final say. And I, I know that some people don't like talking about judgment, but it's a reality of Scripture. It's an essential teaching. And the judgment of God is true that He will have the final say. And why would He not? Because there's two things that God knows automatically that take into consideration all the things that give them the right for judgment. One, God knows all the circumstances. He knows every single circumstance. There's not a way where we can use the excuse, well, you didn't know what happened in the moment. No, no. God knows every struggle. He knows every secret. He knows every shortcoming. He knows every sinking moment and what it entails. He saw every circumstance. And not only did He see every circumstance, God knows every motive. So regardless of what was going on at the time, God knows what's really in our hearts. He knows what was really in our thoughts. And while we may have many noble deeds that we have done, God will search and see if those were done out of selfish, wrongful motives. Because He knows us to the depths. We would do real well to remember those things and submit ourselves to a correct submission to God's authority and judgment. Because here's the thing, even if we were to be able to escape the first two judgments from mankind and from the self, or even pretend that the third one doesn't exist, we cannot and will not escape the judgment of God. It is a reality, and every person will face this. And the ultimate judgment belongs to Him alone. This is good for the believer because it reminds us that when God looks at us in His ultimate judgment, if we have trusted in Jesus, what does He see? 
He sees the just and the justifier of all who have fallen short of the glory of God and yet have placed their trust in Him. That will be a beautiful reckoning. So Paul says in the light of that, don't judge anything prematurely. Seek before the Lord comes who will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and reveal the intention of the heart. Just know that God is going to take care of that. But we must be faithful and humble in what we are to do. For those who have been faithful, praise will come to each one from God. Perspective number two that we see here is not only that, that we need authentic biblical humility comes from a correct submission to judgment, but it comes from a correct sight of grace. See, there's a beautiful balance here that yes, judgment is a reality, but yes, grace is a provision. It is a gift. Now, brothers and sisters, I applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit so that you may learn from us. Paul had a way of including himself in things. He didn't try to exclude himself and saying, y'all should know better, I'm doing good, I'm just going to check out. He really included himself in every one of these things when he's writing. Instead of saying, you're going to get it, he said, us, all of us are going to face this. That's a mark of a good pastor, by the way. I'm not trying to toot my horn or anything like that, but whenever you find someone that tends to preach the Word as you, 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 or they, 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 and they don't think us, the reality of I will stand before the Lord. You're seeing someone that is not having a correct side of grace. He's got a warped sense of pride. Us. Paul is clear, however, that this is not about Paul's words. It's not about his will. It's about God's word and God's will. And the word of God, it condemns all human pride. All of it. When someone teaches you the scripture, though, you need to know that the goal is never merely human advice. It's meant to be divine commands shared in love. And that's why Paul says here, says, about the grace of God, what do you have that you didn't receive? That's a big question. That'll help shift your mindset pretty clearly. When you think about what you really possess, what do you have that you didn't receive? What do you have that was not gifted to you by God? And that's why Paul says, what makes you so superior? Why, why do you think that you're excluded from the acts of God's grace, from His demonstration? Or merely seeing it as a little thing? What do you have that you didn't receive? If in fact you did receive it, then why do you boast as if you hadn't received it? Why do you live? Why do you praise? Why do you exalt things as if grace wasn't a factor? This is grace, the unmerited favor of God revealed through the Gospel that a man does not save himself. He must be saved. The Gospel of Jesus, when we talk about what it is, it's commonly understood by believers, but sometimes we need a reminder. I know you may be thinking, he's going to go through that acrostic again. He's going to share about that again because, you know, maybe he doesn't have new material. You know what? This is the only material. The Gospel is the central material. And if we miss out on it, we miss out on everything. Because it defines everything else. Because it teaches us about God's character. That God being rich in mercy because of His great love that He had for us, He shares that He is the holy and righteous One. And He is loving and merciful. And He created every single one of us, knit us together in our mother's womb with the purpose to be in a relationship with Him. But at the same time, in all that love, He is still the just 
Almighty Judge who will not let a guilty sinner go unpunished. That's why we see the offensiveness of sin. That's why we talk about what sin is and we can't let that escape as if it's not a reality or if it's not copacetic for today's conversation. I know people don't want to hear about sin. They don't want to hear about judgment. But the good news of the Gospel addresses the awfulness of sin, this critical issue that man is rebellious beginning in the Garden of Eden and is passed down to every single one of us. And it's that rebellion that separates us from this holy, merciful, loving God. And the thing is that sins, well, they're an offense. And they're such an offense that they're odious. They can never be removed by our good deeds. You ever had something that stank so bad you just couldn't get it washed out? It's just odious. It's just there forever. That's what remains on a sustain, a stench that cannot be removed by any good deeds. There's not a lie soap good enough to get it gone. It can't be overcome by any attempt at righteousness, by doing enough good works. And even those good works, they place us on a path of punishment, destruction eternally because they're saying, I'm trusting in this rather than the one who's able to save. Without an understanding of sin, there's no realization that we really need a Savior. But here's the good news. When we talk about the sufficiency of Christ, it is such a need for us to get this right, that Christ is the only way that is sufficient to forgive us for sins based on the cross, because either He is sufficient alone to pay for the penalty of sins on the cross, or He's not. There is no gray issue on that. We've got to get that correct. That Jesus is does not is not taking say I'm an answer. He is saying I am the only answer. That it is only finished by what He did on the cross. The cross, Christ is sufficient. Nothing needs to be added to the gospel. Nothing needs to be added that well Jesus, but or Jesus plus. No, Jesus equals everything. You don't have to add anything else. But what the Gospel gives us is it's good news because it's not a forced issue. It's that God gives us a personal response. And although God clearly acted in, in the eternity past and, and, and in history past to bring about His salvation through mighty, mighty means, He did it through the cross. But what He presents in the cross is not that, hey, I'm going to completely just answer this for you. He says, I'm going to present you with a gift. And you can choose to accept it or not. And you must choose to believe the Gospel. And that mark will have eternal urgency. That it is eternity that is pressing in on us on this decision. And how we make that decision will affect that eternity, but it also transforms life. It brings about a new creation and makes us conformed into His image. Here's the thing. When we think about what we have done and can do, and we think about what God has done, for us. Man, doesn't this rule out pride? Doesn't this just strain it out? As if you see, wow, there's just no room for that. There's just no room for that. And what, what blossoms as pride is strained out is humble, biblical gratitude remains. Here's the fault of the Corinthians. It's not that they had forgotten. I mean, it's not that they had... Um, they had intended to be unfaithful. That was not the fault that, that came to the Corinthians. It's they had forgotten who had awakened them and who they owed their very souls to. And that is a plight that is not 
so unfamiliar. That is a plight that is not too distant from, from me or from any of us. And whenever that happens, it is a multi-syndrome issue. Multi-symptom syndrome. I believe spiritual amnesia, it has multiple symptoms. It will spring up and do all kinds of things. When we forget our place, when we forget who God is and what God has done, and the grace that was demonstrated to us, man, it just strains all kinds of things. And what Paul says, it got a bloated sense of ego to where they were just boasting about life and living any way they pleased. They were apathetic to Scripture. They were just living a life of chaos. And they even despised those who brought them the good news of the Gospel. He says, you're already full. You're already rich. You don't need anything. You've begun to reign with kings without us. And I wish you did reign so that we could also reign with you because you didn't have anything until the Gospel was presented to you. And yet, what you consider us and what many consider us, it's like men condemned to die. He gives this illustration of People that have won a great triumph, have won a great victory, and they have this triumph parade. And what they would often do is they would bring their spoils of war, and they would tr- bring them with them in these parades and show off these mighty, mighty men. But in the very end of the parade, the people that were considered last were the men condemned to die. They would be saluted as men condemned to die. The last sense of triumph. And Paul says, that's how you consider us. It's how the world considers us. But yet, this is what we do. When we are reviled, we bless. When we're persecuted, we endure it. When we're slandered, we respond graciously. Even though we're like the scum of the earth, everyone's garbage. This is the return. Because what do we have that we didn't receive from God? Who is it that is ultimately worthy of praise? Who is it ultimately really about? And Paul faces their spiritual amnesia and says this is a reality. But he gives them a third perspective. That authentic biblical humility is cultivated through a correct stance in truth and love. What Paul does is amazing here. He says, I'm not writing this to shame you. That's not the, that's not the point of this letter, by the way. It wasn't Paul saying, oh, let me just drop a grenade and run. I've heard of speakers, and they they, kind of jokingly say this, you know, guest speakers. I can pretty much say anything I want because I don't have to be here next Sunday. And uh, that kind of thing. I've heard preachers say that, and, and it's funny in a way, but at the same time, that is not the goal. The goal is to be mutually beneficial to all. And what Paul says, I'm not doing that. I'm not just dropping a grenade and running. He says, I'm not writing this to shame you. In fact, what I'm doing is to lovingly warn you as my dear children. Some of you are parents know what that means. You're not trying to shame your kid, but you're trying to warn them that if you keep doing what you're doing, it is not going to be well for you. It is not going to have the effects that it needs to have. And Paul goes to say, you, you may have countless instructors in Christ. There are going to be people that come and go in your life, but you don't have many fathers. Those that stick with you, that will love you and teach you and be faithful to you. For I became your father in Christ Jesus, that Jesus had established this relationship. And so then he goes on to say, therefore I urge you to imitate me. Let's, let's break that apart. Paul in this place, and he, he stands on truth and also displays love and kindness to these, these wayward disciples who really didn't know they were that wayward. 
It wasn't until Paul wrote the letter that they started saying, hey, uh, there might be some stuff that's messed up here. But it's not the words that come from some scolding taskmaster to an unruly servant, but it's the firm's teaching that seeks to restore a wayward child that is unknowingly gone astray. There's a deep kindness and tenderness here. Paul's firmness that is deeply needed and deeply rooted in the truth and love that's found in Jesus. And Paul wants them to realize that that there's this special relationship that Jesus has, has brought between the two of them. They share. This is not just some organizational relationship. This is not just something that's considered like a hireling relationship where, well, you know, we're not really knowing each other. It's a personal one. It has deep meaning. It has deep trust. It's had deep shared experience. It's had honest desire for the best in and from one another. That's what Paul has done when he spent those months in Corinth. And Paul then goes a step further, a step that is absolutely profound to me. It's, it's amazing and it, it, it befuddles my mind. Not because of any arrogance, but because of Paul willing to be held to account. Let's, look what he says. He says, imitate me. Imitate me. That just kind of blows my mind. I, I am bewildered by that. Because I'll be honest, when I look at my life, I, I don't want you to imitate me. I don't. I'm that parent that sometimes I'm like, do as you're told, not as, do, do as I say, not as I do. You know, I, I hate that about my life. But Paul is saying, take after me, your father in the faith. He is willing to be held to account. And, and I want that in my life, but I'm afraid to ask for it. We all want our children to be turned out better than we have. And to succeed where we didn't exceed it. But then don't you find yourself like that? With others? Do as I say, not as I do. Don't, don't. Paul said, I'm not willing to stay in just that little place. I'm willing to go beyond further. I'm willing to lead and be the example. And if that means people need me to be held responsible and to faithfully demonstrate the Gospel, and it just requires all of me because the Lord wills it, then the Lord wills it and I give it. What a profoundly humble statement. Not one of arrogance or pride. And then he says, I want to send someone to you. I can't come to you right now. I'm a thousand miles away, but I've sent Timothy. He is free. And, and, and he is a faithful child of the Lord. And he has witnessed who I am. The heartbreaking moments and the faithful moments and the, the moments of power. He reminds you about my ways in Christ Jesus, that I'm not just telling you that I'm not willing to live here. I'm telling you that it's demonstrated in every church where I go. He's sending Timothy as a way to bring a cure for spiritual amnesia. That's what God does. When we have spiritual amnesia in the church, He brings someone in our life to just shake us and say, Wake up! Not because we're anything, but because He is everything. Paul's way of saying, I know that you never sought to be in this place, but your forgetfulness is leading you there. It's hurting you. And so often it's not that we rebel against Christ. It's simply that we forget Him. Am I right? That's not that we just like, well, like today, you know, I'm just going to totally just debunk and rebel against Jesus. It's just that we forget that He's in the midst of everything. 
It's not that we deliberately turn our backs upon Him. It's to simply forget that He is in the midst of everything and, and worth praise in everything. And most of us need one thing above all else. We need a deliberate effort to live in this conscious realization of the very presence of Jesus Christ. We need to understand that it is not only when we take of communion, but at every moment of every day that Jesus Christ is saying, do this in remembrance of Me. Remember Me. Not just when you drink of the cup. Not just when you eat the cracker. And we need people to speak into our lives that message. To do it humbly. To speak truth and grace. Truth and love. Tim Keller, a pastor, he says this, truth without grace is not really truth and grace without truth is not really grace because both of them are mutually beneficial. Both of them are mutually needed. They're both essential. And without one or the other, they fall apart. Warren Wiersbe says this, truth without love is actually brutality and love without truth comes across as hypocrisy. This is a love that's demonstrated in the church. And when Paul is sharing this, this is the heart-wrenching, gut-wrenching kind of love. This is not some turn a blind eye. This is not some easy or sentimental or nostalgic love. That is just based on, I, I just can't bear to hurt them. I can't bear to be honest with them. I can't bear to be real. No, this is a love that was not self-seeking. It's not self-promoting. It is a love that knew that sometimes truth and discipline are needed to be exercised so that grace can be received. There's a kind of love that can ruin. Hear me out, guys. There's a kind of love that can ruin a person by shutting its eyes to his faults. And there is a love that can mend a man because it sees them clearly through the eyes of Jesus. How are we demonstrated that truth and love? What is our stance? Are we in correct submission under God's judgment and realizing that His authority holds all? Are we in a correct sight of grace that helps strain out the pride and that's gracious gratitude blossom in worship? And are we standing with truth and love because they are mutually needed? And are we welcoming those in our life, those Pauls, to come into our lives to share this. And are we being those Pauls to someone that needs us to share it? That's authentic biblical humility. The role of a servant of Christ. The role of a manager of the mysteries of God. Standing correctly under His judgment. Willing to keep sight of grace. To take a stance upon truth and love. And to be held accountable and saying, I'm not willing to just do this whole do as I say, not as I do. But under God's authority, if you need me to be that, that example, I'm not Jesus, but I'll do my best to represent Him. I do it not because there's anything in me, but because it's everything through the Gospel. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I just pray that You help us in this time to respond to You appropriately and, and willingly. We see that You are good and that You are God and that You have all authority and yet You have demonstrated incredible compassion to us in this moment. Help us remove the mask. Help us not try to produce something that's 
that's just barely there, but in all of our hearts surrender to You. And know that You can cleanse and forgive from even the deepest pits of sin. And You can help help walk in the newness that is found in You, Jesus. That You can correct the wayward. You can remind the forgetful. And You can show us what it is to know Your truth and love and to live in, in that. You can do this. And You promise You will do this for those that trust in You. So God, help us trust in You. In Your name we pray. Amen. With every eye closed, every head bowed, we have this time of response, this time of invitation. And I know that most of the people that are in here are our regulars today. And you know, you've know you been here um, many, many times. But I just want to ask, and as a way of reminding you, just to prevent that spiritual amnesia, today I want to ask that question I ask every Sunday. Do you have peace with God because you have peace from God? Do you have a peace based on what Jesus has done for you that you know and you have trusted and you have received? If that's you today and you say, Pastor, I know I have peace with God, I just thank you for that reminder. Not because you're anything special, Pastor, but because the Word is a good reminder. If that's you today, that you have peace with God based on what God's done for you. And you're reminded today, would you raise your hand just to say, I have that peace. That's me. It's a wonderful reminder as we come and be refreshed by that. I thank God. I praise Him with you today. I also saw that there were some that did not raise their hand. Maybe they're struggling with that. Maybe they know Jesus, but they just had a life right now that's not giving them peace. Or maybe it's that they don't know Jesus. You don't know Jesus, and you recognize that you may be doing religious things, you may look good on the outside with a mask, but really deep inside you don't have peace from God. That's you today. I want, to, I want to pray for you. Would you be bold enough to raise your hand this time? If that's you, and you say, Pastor, I don't have peace with God, pray for me. I just want to pray for you. Raise your hand if that's you. I want to tell you that if, if that is you, maybe you're struggling to answer, but you know you need peace from God. It happens through the way of the gospel. Trusting in the fact that God is who He says He is and that sin is a reality and Jesus has dealt with that sin through the cross. And that He is the only one that has. And now He offers you the ability to respond in a way that will change your eternity and also change your life here and now. And if that's you and you want to trust in Jesus, to receive the peace that comes from Him, the forgiveness of sins, the salvation of your soul, you can do it first by admitting you're a sinner in need of a Savior. That just as if you were drowning and would need to cry out for help to someone to rescue you, that is what you're doing in that moment. You're admitting to Christ your need for Him. He already knows you need Him, but you're coming to that place where you realize it. It's second, believing that Jesus is who He says He is according to the Scripture. That indeed, He is Savior, He is Lord, He is King, He is God, He is Messiah. And that what He did on the cross was die in our place, your place, my place. And yet He rose again on the third day, and today He still is. He's still answering prayers because He's still alive. It's believing that. And lastly, it's confessing Him as your Lord and Savior. It's making that declaration that I believe. 
I admit it, I believe it, and I confess that He is Savior and Lord, that I want to follow after Him and I'm asking Him to save me and forgive me of my sins. And if you need to do that, the Bible says you can do it by first believing in your heart, which results in righteousness. It's not just like making a wish and just hoping it to be true. It's, it's by saying, I know this is what is true in my heart. And then confessing it with your lips by a prayer. Calling out to God. And if that's you, you can pray a prayer like this. Maybe in your seat and you just need to repeat after me because you don't know the words. But you can pray a prayer like this. Dear Jesus, I need Your help. I admit I am a sinner and I need a Savior. And I believe You are that great Savior who died for me and rose again. That You are who the Bible says You are. I confess my sins to You and ask You to forgive them. And I confess that I want You to save me and help me to follow after You as Lord of my life. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Today, if that's you and you prayed that prayer, the Bible says that with the mouth, with the heart one believes and the mouth one confesses. If that's you, the Bible says Jesus saves everyone who calls in the name of the Lord. Now at this moment, we're going to have just a time of response. I'm going to be up here at the front. And if you prayed that prayer today, I want to encourage you to make, let, it know, let someone know that, that that was you. You made that decision today. You can certainly come tell me. I'll be up here. You can find a friend or family member. Talk to them about that decision. But don't wait. The Bible says that you need to do this. It's, it's helpful. And it's also something worthy of celebrating. But I'll also be up here at the front. Maybe you know Jesus, but you have some other decisions that need to be dealt with. Maybe you need to join and unite yourself with this church as a member. Maybe you have need of being scripturally baptized. Maybe you are feeling called to some ministry or some new thing as a disciple. Maybe you just need someone to comfort you, encourage you in prayer. As the music plays for the next few moments, I'm going to be at the front. And should someone respond, I'll be here to help encourage you, to pray for you, and help you in that decision as you take your next step with Jesus.